What does it take to become an elite 40K player? How do the top competitors overcome bad dice? The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War Unbroken. Insight into the game plans of the top players on the planet with your hosts, Blake Law and the Art of War Coaches. Hello and welcome to Art of War Unbroken. Champions may lose, but their spirits remain unbroken. I'm your host, Blake Law. This is episode 20 of the podcast. That is correct. We've been doing this for five months now. I can't believe it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for supporting us. We are very glad you're here today. They say we learn the most from our losses, and that is exactly what this show aims to do. We are going to interview elite players who have lost one to two games in a major event, break down their mistakes, and just analyze how they plan to move forward and learn from those mistakes. That is not what we're doing today, though. That is what the show is about, and that concept still remains. What we are doing today is we are taking a slight detour from our normal episode guidelines. We are going to talk about a subject that I think everyone wants to talk about and something that's very relevant today, and that is how do you go from being a casual player or a casual tournament goer and take that to the next level and become a competitive 40K player. We interview players who are elite, but how can the average listener go from being, I went three and three in an event to winning the whole thing? And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to sit down with two spectacular 40K players, two of the Art of War coaches, and we're going to talk about starting at ground zero, how do you move forward? This is a kind of prequel, I would say, to our YouTube series that's coming out in a very short while. I'll let Richard Siegler talk about that in a little bit. Spoiler alert. Um, just what when what's to come with that whole YouTube series. There is no part two today. It is all part one. We are sitting down and we are hammering out an hour of content today just talking about the subject at hand. I have two co-hosts today. You know and love the first one. He is known as, as the English people would call him, Brad number two. He is a outright champion of 40K. He has won a lot of stuff. He has won a lot of big events, ladies and gentlemen. He's had a lot of top LVO finishes. He won the Armed Forces GT this year. He won the ACO this year. He is a nine-time member of Team USA. He no longer fears the Fire Raptor. We put that the rest last episode, Mr. Brad Chester. Fire Raptor will always haunt me every day. Done. It's done, man. It's done. Just let it go. I can't wait to Highlander style the Brads in New Orleans. And just to reiterate, John Lennon is a Brad New Orleans. So I don't know how you're going to defeat him, but uh, I feel like he could claim Brad number one spot. He could be the number one Brad. No chance. It's because it's all going down to physical violence, man. And I'd like like to point out here, this episode is going to release right before um, New Orleans the big events. So if you're, if any of our listeners are down there, they want to come say hi, come, come hang out with us, man. I want to talk to everyone who listens to the show. So make sure to hit us up when you're down there in New Orleans. We'll talk for wine. We'll talk for wine. Yeah. You got, you got to pay Brad. He's, he's too much of a celebrity just to talk for free. You got to, you got to bring in some wine. I was just going to go with I was just going to go with old wino, but celebrity old, old wino, oh, whatever. He'll tell you the stories of how he once threw a football clear over those mountains over there, and it'll be great, fantastic. Our other co-host today is someone who's been on this show before. I've already spoiled who it is, but I'm going to go ahead and just give a full full intro here. You know, he's won an LVO, he's won Nova, he's won Pro Tabletop, he's won Warzone Atlanta, and all that was in one freaking year. And it all led to a spectacular finish to a 2019 ITC Championship. Bebop, Bebop, everything else, French, Mr. Richard Siegler. Honestly, Blake, when you had said you know and love him, I expected you to introduce. Whoa, yeah. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Step away from my love, 
Hey, I've been a little too harsh on Bradley. I feel like I've been I've been slamming on his intro, so I had to give a little bit of love. You know, it's like you, you got to find the balance. It's kind of like that tough love, you know. So don't worry, I'm here now. He's here. He's here. <laughs> Everything's safe. We're in a safe zone now in this episode. You're safe. You're in good hands. I'm gonna start off. Should we let them eat cake, Siegler? Absolutely. Only if you're Nick. If you're Nick Nanavati, then absolutely. <laughs> you live in an alternate reality uh, where history is not taught. You can absolutely eat cake. You gotta let him do it. Okay. You, you do Listen. realize that we we he could not find out where he was in Europe, let alone know the history of Europe. <laughs> he doesn't know where he is in this, his own house. <laughs> yeah. I see Good that. point. Good point. So the the whole purpose of this uh podcast today is really to just deep dive, drop one in the jar into for, competitive 40k. So Siegler, tell us a little bit about what's to come with Art of War and the intro to uh, competitive 40k YouTube series you're working on. All right, so yeah, coming up, you know, we've done a lot of uh, live content, which you know and love. However, coming up soon, we are going to do a ton of edited videos, and these ones are going to focus on the fundamentals of 40K. So we're going to teach you how to design a top-tier army list that can take you from 2 and 3, or maybe 3 and 2, all the way up to that 4 and 1, or undefeated category. We are going to look at how you build a list to be effective on multiple different terrain styles. So we'll look at heavy terrain, medium terrain, light terrain. What are the things you need to think about if you were going to go to an event which has a wide variety of different types of terrain? We'll talk about how to do it on player place terrain. We're going to talk about all sorts of skills like move blocking, how to engage units that have fight last abilities effectively, how to go ahead and trap things and when to trap. So we're going to go through all the main things about 9th edition that will help you become a better player if you master these particular fundamentals. And who who will that be available to? Is that just available to general YouTube or like the subscribers to the channel? Or how do you access that content, I guess? Absolutely. So in the War Room, we teach this stuff all the time in the stream games that we're doing, in the clinics that we teach. But uh, we are creating a more general, condensed, and uh, you know, shortened version for YouTube. So that'll be available to anybody who comes and checks out our YouTube channel. So it's kind of like the spoiler precursor to joining the War Room kind of thing. Yeah, I like that. Exactly. That's pretty cool. Yep, it gives you the foundation to su- succeed in there and succeed at your tournaments. So let's just jump right into it, man. I want to know, we got Brad here. We got Siegler here. I got to know, what is the very beginning? If you had one piece, okay, a player just bought their first box of Admech and they're a competitive person. They say, I'm going to a tournament next weekend after I build all this stuff. What what, do you, what would you say to him? What's the first thing you would say to him? So, first of all, they made an excellent choice. Yeah, I'll say, to, to the, from the AdMech player. <laughs> uh, but you got to play in this. First off, especially when you're starting off, it's important to play an army that you're going to be comfortable with the style of playing it with. So, that's one of the first things, is while you're learning, you're going to put in more games, you're going to be more comfortable, you're going to like the style more. If you pick an army, an army style, I mean, you can make AdMech literally any style you want, which is why it's a really good pickup, actually. But you, you for one, are going to want to play in a style that you're comfortable with, play in a style that has the assault if you like to assault, um, more balanced, you know, lots of shooting. You're going to want to pick up something you like first because you're going to play it. Again, it's a game for fun, and you're going to have more fun in that game if you're doing well because you're going to be playing more. Yeah. Now maybe you're coming in for the first time. You haven't played tabletop games before. And you're struggling to figure out, what is my play style? Um, Am I that more defensive KG player who wants to keep the game even and win on a couple key plays and outplay my opponent that way? Are you the player who wants to just bring the big guns, sit in your deployment zone, you know, throw out some trash in the middle of the table and just, you know, destroy your opponent's army? Maybe you want to play an elite melee army uh, that plays very aggressively, gets in the middle of the table 
and actively tries to destroy the opponent's points. So how do you figure that out? Well, you can ask yourself, do you play any other sorts of video games? What's your style there? Do you play you know, RTS games like StarCraft? Are you more of a macro player, a micro player? Do you prefer the defensive style of Terran, you know, for example, uh, when you're playing you know, uh, 1v1 games, like shooter games? Are you that more aggressive player? Are you the tank player? You know, there's art, different archetypes and all sorts of other avenues. Like, what do you kind of lean? Are you a dirty I, sniper? Are you a sniper? Do you want to sit back with Vindicares and you know, of trans trans archibuses? You know, figure it out. So, uh, I would start with looking at the other aspects of your life and video games and see if you can pick a style from there that's actually kind of consistent for you. Do a little bit of self analysis. What's funny is I, I will say this is this was me. The person I'm talking about is me essentially like a year ago. I came back into the game after 10 years and I was like, I don't remember anything about this game. I'm just going to pick up an army. And it was a struggle, I'll tell you, because I wanted every single army because they all look freaking sweet in this game. So that was the, and that was one of the first steps I did is I sat down with uh, Nick and I was like, hey, what, what do I play? You know, what, what should I play? And I think that knowing yourself is pretty important, actually. So you start, you know yourself. All right, where do you go from there? Well, we've got our particular book. How do we know what's actually good in here? What's synergistic? You could go the route of Brad and just start you know, playing games, build up as much as you can. But how do you know exactly what to buy, what to build? This is a really expensive hobby, and it takes a lot of time to build and fully paint an army up to a, you know, a good standard. So you want a shortcut. Well, that's where places, various places online, like The Art of War or Goonhammer, can be extremely helpful. So looking at and things like BCP. So you're going to want to go ahead and first of all, find out what the meta is. Okay. It gives you a sense of what the main synergies people are building around. doesn't mean they're the only ones. It just means that they're popular ones. So it's a good starting point. It's a foundation. Also the things you're going to be playing against. So Mm -hmm. absolutely. And, And we'll definitely get to that in a second. So you go ahead. What are people playing? What are the synergies in the book? Um, and then from there, you can actually start putting it onto the table. So you can do proxying. And if you don't have all the correct models, that's very common. You could play something on like TTS, where you can go ahead and download the, the various units and put them on a uh, electronic tabletop and just start figuring out synergies there. You could listen to experts talk on the topic. We have tons and tons of content about every faction. We have stream games on every faction showing off top builds. So you can go to these you know, channels on YouTube and kind of get a sense of what is actually good in this faction to give you a bit of a shortcut. From there, once you know what the main synergies and the power uh, units are, you can then decide what is actually going to fit into my particular list. And that opens up a whole bunch of extra questions, which, like Brad was talking about, what is the overall meta? What are the big armies in this meta that we could potentially be playing against? Um, there are armies like Tau, which aren't, aren't particularly common right now. GSC isn't very common. So we're not worried as much about trying to outplay the players who might bring those armies. Instead, we're going to focus on the Drukhari and uh, you know the other Admech players who might be up there, Space Marine players of various types. We need to figure out what we could potentially be playing against because there are going to be minor changes and even sometimes major changes in our list. If there's a bunch of orc squig buggies that you could potentially be facing, you need different tools in your list to help deal against that, uh, especially if it's just spamming tons and ve- tons of minus one damage vehicles. That requires particular tools to deal with. Um, so you need to be thinking about the meta overall. What else could I be potentially playing Ter- against at the this terrain, time? The terrain for where you're going to be playing, your local terrain, uh, your game store, where you're going to be playing at. Most places will have um, a player packet for a bit larger tournaments, but you can just go and see the terrain and maybe your local game store and stuff like that where you're going to be playing. 
uh, that also is going to make a big difference in in the how you can play and what you're going to see. Yeah, I think a big thing is is setting a goal too. So going back on what terrain are you playing on? I think if you're really serious about being a competitive player, taking a step back and going, all right, you know what? I'm going to set a goal for six months from now. I'm going to you know, Adepticon 2022, or I'm going to Nova in 2022. You pick an event, or I'm going to my local GT that's that's an hour away, uh, you know, in a month. And you look at that and you say, all right, what is the terrain there? You know, what what do I need to build towards, you know? And I think that's a big step, too, is setting hobby goals and it's, sure. uh, something achievable. And you, and you can practice on that specific terrain, too. Get yourself a feel for it. If that's the the goal is to have a particular result there, Play on that terrain, you know what I mean? Get yourself familiar with how the interactions are going. I'd like to take a step back on something Siegler said, too, because he was talking about, you know, the meta. What is the meta? Knowing what the meta is and building around that. There's several resources that are really helpful for that. And one thing, I know this feels like a self, self-plug for the art of war, but it's really helpful. I mean, if you go to the war room Every single Monday, they do something called Meta Monday. Brad is one of That's the right. common figures there, and it's actually super helpful. They sit down and they say, what won last weekend? What was really popular at last GT, at this 100-man GT? What's, what's and successful? We, and we really try to, and I, I agree 100%, mainly because I like to promote myself, but also it's a big deal because we try to delve down into it, take a deep dive, put it in the jar, and say not only what won, but why did it win? What what are the reasons that people are taking these things? Especially when you see common themes throughout different armies, you go, well, why are they taking these units? And we go into exactly why they're so popular. There's a couple of other things that Siegler said I wanted to unpack, because Siegler dropped a lot of bombs there. One of them is TTS, which for those who don't know is Tabletop Simulator. I really hate it. I am not technologically advanced whatsoever. It's a struggle for me to record this every week. But for, if you're like a computer-minded person, that is a great way to put models down like artificially I, I, and really I do play a game. I'm not going to lie. I, I play less games on it, but I think it's a great tool. And it's especially a great tool for, uh, like Steve was saying, it's expensive. This is an expensive hobby. For one, see what your footprint is on an army. When you start putting things on the table, how they interact with the terrain. If you put only vehicles down, you can't move through those buildings and things of that nature. So put it down at TTS is a fantastic tool for just that and just seeing what it would look like on the board, knowing where you can deploy, especially if we're talking about setting that goal for a specific tournament, you'll know what type of terrain layouts they have, and you can actually put that army down there without spending a nickel and then figure out exactly what models you need to get ready, purchase, and paint. Yeah, and there's some amazing online communities if you're interested in Tabletop Simulator. We actually did an interview on our YouTube channel Uh, about a week or two ago and that was for the tts warhammer 40k community and they've got like 10,000 plus people on that on that discord and in addition to that they run a competitive tts tournament called the alpha league and there's usually you know 100 plus players in that so you see a really wide variety of builds and they're also fairly competitive minded players and they run you know because it's tts you can see some more skew builds because it's easier to access them i know like last season when they played there was like a double harridan like 27 yeah, ripper swarm list. Some, exactly. You can see some wild stuff, but you can actually get you know, a wide variety of practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to try this out. And in real life, if I just tried it out, quotation marks, it would cost me about $600, but it cost me nothing here. 
Yeah, so it's a great testing ground, absolutely, for competitive lists without having to actually put the upfront cost of buying the models, uh, which is a huge boon. And there's a lot of friendly people on there in tutorials. Uh, we also run some TTS leagues in Art of War as well. The, one of the other things you had mentioned, Siegler, was the the concept of proxy, which I'm sure most people are familiar with, but if you're not, it's just taking a model with a similar footprint. So say you have a 40 millimeter model and it's a you know a terminator and you're like all right i'm going to take this other 40 millimeter model and and proxy it as a tournament as a terminator in this game and I, that's super useful because it's another way to put models on a table you know without uh without spending a dime and really seeing how they interact reps are always good period just the going through the motions of anything is always good because it familiarizes yourself with your rules your opponent's rules and just the basic way that models interact with other models uh, on the board. Yeah, I only started playing competitively, uh, 40k that is, in uh, the very, like the first year of 8th edition, like at the end of that, um, after they started uh, releasing codexes and kind of, you know, nailed down the craziness in the indexes. That's when I started. And in order to get good, there were two main ways I did it. The first one was just putting unit, I, I, I found a tabletop that was roughly Know, the six by four size of eighth edition and i'd go ahead and throw my army down with you know as much terrain as i could find and just practice deploying because deploying sets you up for the entire game and if you start making huge so mistakes much. in your army in deployment you are going to lose a lot more games than if you make no mistakes in deployment I, so uh, you're, you're so right i mean and the thing is, is that at the top tables you you literally see games where it's not an automatic but if somebody makes huge deployment errors you know they're going to lose most of the time it's so hard uh, to recover exactly before the game even starts if they're out of position it's such a big deal to get used to that and the thing is is you can pre-measure everything that's another thing do not be afraid to pre-measure 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 it's one of the, the basic things that i see so few people do all the time you can just measure how far your opponent's models go and then you can base your movements on that. And that's a very basic thing that I think that everybody should be doing from day one is pre-measuring your models and your opponent's models so you can understand what can happen. It helps so much in just understanding the dynamics of the game and what could happen on any turn. Yes. Like I said, I, I, I would go ahead and put my army down this 2,000-point Tau army and try and assume that I'm playing against, you know, another top meta. And that, that comes from going to places, uh, various places online like Goonhammer, figuring out what they are, and just putting my army down. How do I deploy against this army on this particular terrain format or mission format? How do I kind of play out those first, you know, one or two turns to get a sense of where exactly I need to be moving and how I need to be moving, especially with like a synergistic army like that? Um, the second main thing that I like doing uh, to practice is find the best players in your local meta. I happened to start playing competitively in Central Florida, and that was where Mr. John Lennon was playing. And John Lennon was the Mac Daddy of the Central Florida meta. And I didn't play him the first two RTTs I played at, but after that, I pretty consistently played him at most tournaments. And boy, did he beat me down, you know, like four or five different times. And I was, I, I got I do, severely schooled. I, I do love the key word there, if, if you're not paying attention, Blake was. John Lennon was the Mac Daddy of Central Florida. He was the Mac Daddy. Are uh, you the Mac Daddy now, Siegler? Is that what you're trying to say? I, I still let him be the Mac Daddy of Central Florida meta, but I am the Mac Daddy. I won the South in uh, 2019, and then I just won the entire ITC. So I think I have uh, that extra layer of, uh, of privilege over John right now. But uh, with your, especially with your the Games Workshop Orlando final, like, come on, that's, that's the Central Florida's biggest tournament so far. 
With your elven-like hearing, can you hear John Lennon crying across the house right now? He is shedding tears right now. Okay, um, good. Just making sure. I feel for him. <laughs> he, he doesn't. Even, he can't hear you. He just feels the the sorrow. But seriously, I wonder, the thing is, he he beat me down like four or five times in a row. Brutal. Like the first couple, especially, were brutally. So I got schooled on how to screen properly, on how to prevent my models from being trapped, and I was playing Tau, so no counter assault there. Um, and but I learned, and I got extremely good at uh, playing defensively and being able to prevent uh, traps and stuff from going off. And guess what? I eventually was able to beat John and I beat him in the semifinals of Nova in 2019. And since then, uh, I've had a pretty decent track record against him. And it's so important. I mean, that's the whole reason we do this podcast, but you just learn so much from your losses. Um, against good players, especially. who really outplay you. One thing, I, I want to go back to this. So you guys take your armies and you deploy them versus yourself. Uh, that's a really, uh, honestly, new concept for me. And it's something I'm really curious for y'all to talk about. I, I, we do, I do it a lot. I'm assuming Cease does it. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's a lot of things. One, if you can't score, you should basically deploy your army, pick your secondaries, and look at the mission. And then if you can't score your max points with literally no one against you, you have to do two things. One, change your game plan, possibly change your army. Maybe your army doesn't have enough speed. Maybe it doesn't have enough units. You know, And that's the thing is, is putting it on the table allows you to look at that without any pressure of what you have to do. There's no dice rolling. You're just looking at it. If I'm taking engage, what units are getting engaged? If I'm taking stranglehold, you know, who's doing rods? Who's retrieving Aterius data? You know, what is happening right there? And do also, in my deployment, am I able to do those things? Can, if I'm taking engage, but I can't get anybody in my opponent's deployment, you know, side of the table for two turns, well, I either have to pick a different secondary, or I have to deploy different, or I have to choose different units that are just faster. So there's a lot to be said for that. And also, I need to figure out: Does my army fit? Can I hide the things that I need to hide? Do you do you put dummy models up for the for opponents? Do you move other models and see how they would interact, or is that something that you never think about? It's both. If you want to do it. I mean, the main thing for me is that when I'm doing it by myself, you know, when I'm looking at it, I'm just, I'm looking to see where I'm going to be and how I'm going to score my points. Because you should always have a plan on how I'm going to score, hopefully my 100, you know. It's, you know, what I'm going to do to get those points, and then you can work from there. Because if you can't score of the max score against no one, then you're going to have a tough time when your opponent actively tries to stop you. And you have to know what your your army does. And the thing is, as I do a lot of is not only deploying it, but knowing what battlefield roles each unit is basically doing. You know, what is it a screening unit? Is it a backfield, backfield objective taker? Is it one of my uh, hard-hitting combat units? Is it a shooting unit? Like, what, what are they trying to do? And a lot of times people just make mistakes and they have a list and they're like, well, this is going to do this and this is going to do engage and this is going to do rods. And all of a sudden you realize that when you do your checklist of what each unit's doing, that one unit's supposed to do three different things on different sides of the board. And that's just not going to happen. You know, that's, that's pretty brilliant, actually. That's something I've never thought to do. And there are times when I'm sitting on a mission and it's maybe one I haven't played a lot just for whatever reason. And I'm like, all right, I don't know what my third secondary is. And it's probably cost me the game a handful of times, you know, just thinking back. Just I have instant games I'm thinking of. Okay, I lost because I took that third secondary that was awful choice. And what you're describing is really kind of the answer to fixing that. That's pretty cool. I mean, Seeks, 
how often do you come to the table and you 100% have your deployment and your secondary game plan already set up? Pretty much every single time. I say this all the time. And when you show up to a top table, you know, any table really, but uh, especially top tables, you cannot be spending time thinking about what secondaries are I choosing? How do I deploy against this army? What are the key tricks and tips that this army is going to try and take advantage of? You need to know that going in. So that's where the foreknowledge from knowing the meta and the other top armies is extremely helpful. And knowing your own army inside and out, and this comes from practicing, either you play a ton of reps, and so you get a lot of practice against the different armies in the game, or if you don't have that opportunity, if maybe your meta only has a couple different armies, or you know you just can't get as many games in due to time, what you can do is set these practice games up yourself and figure out what you need to do. Give yourself um, as close as possible to like a demo setup of what a tournament game would look like against this faction, and go ahead and run through the first couple of turns and just figure out, here's what I need to do, so that when you get to the table, you're not wasting time on stuff that should be automatic, because when you're at the table, what you need to be focusing on is, my opponent is not playing how I expected. Okay, they made these decisions that I didn't expect. How do I adapt my game plan to take advantage of what they're doing in the game, the terrain that's different, you know, something that went wrong on my end that I need to now make up for? That's what you need to be focusing on. All the pre-measuring that you're doing, knowing every single measurement and angle, uh, that's possible. That's what you need to be doing at the tabletop instead of thinking about the fundamentals. It's that's unfortunately one of the big points I wanted to make on this episode was there's a lot of knowledge in 40k and it's just like drinking straight from a fire hose. You know, you're gonna get hit in the face. It's gonna suck, and you're gonna have to really just kind of get through oh, yeah. it. Shameless promotion. Go watch some of the clinics. Look at the the series we're putting out. I know we're, we're, we're literally patting ourselves on the back, but literally we spend all day putting these things together and getting all of it so that you can actually take in that knowledge a little bit easier than reading through, you know, giant codexes all the time. We'll put that knowledge together and put it hopefully in an easy to learn style. And the more you have like expert coaches like telling you how a faction should operate, eventually you look at a new book and you read it yourself and you say, oh, I see how this would play competitively. You start to realize, once you realize how other armies play and how these top players are analyzing it, you start to look at it and say, oh, okay, I can kind of see how these pieces fit together in this next codex. Yeah, and the thing is, is, is Richard talked about it. He's talking about just getting ready and going to the table and already knowing what's going on. There's another thing, just knowing your army. If you look at Sigler running as Metallica list, he has all the aids, all the cards, everything set out that he's going to use right in front of him. Easy access. He's not digging through the book to find roles, to find his buffs. They're literally out there. He's good. You don't have to make super fancy anything. Put your things down with index cards so you know them right away. It's so helpful. Literally top players all the time will have these right there for them. Also, it's courteous to your opponent and it helps both of you to know what buffs what everything is on particular units i'm telling you that will raise your game so much it is not something that you do as remedial and it's in starting i have tons of people just make a checklist literally you can just laminate it and check things off have your command phase your movement phase just the things that you should do put rerolls on somebody do a chaplain buff any of the buffs that happen command phase just check them off especially when you're you're new, you know, you're new to an army. There's a lot going on. And the difference between, for instance, Siegler's Metallica list run by Siegs and somebody that doesn't know the army is literally night and day because of the fact that he's got all of his, he knows all of his interactions very well. And having 
basically things to help you, aids with you, are going to make or break the difference, especially if you're a new player. There's absolutely no shame in using any sort of knowledge aid like that. And I'll give you a perfect example. Heading into LVO 2020, I um, had been playing Iron Hands for one tournament beforehand and a handful of practice games. So I had about 10 games with Iron Hands, maybe even you know eight or nine. And even though this was a super powerful army, I had been playing Tau the entire season. I knew how to beat Iron Hands, but I had not played with all their mechanics. I didn't have all their stratagems memorized. Um, even some of the stats I didn't have completely memorized. So going into the event, I actually created a shorthand kind of couple pages, one with the main data sheets, another with the timing of all the different stratagems, because in 8th edition, there was no command phase. And so you'd have a whole suite of stratagems. And all of them would have different timings. Some would be at the start of movement. Some would be at the start of the tur- uh, start of the battle round. Some at the start of the turn. You'd have ones, you know, start of shooting, I- any time in the shooting phase. You know, so how you actually map all that out is I wrote all the different stratagems I would potentially use and what their timings were in a nice condensed sheet from the start of a turn all the way to the end. And that was immensely helpful for me throughout the game. Um, I also had the various cards to help with gray shield when I would pop white scores and whatnot. So. I still use those, like Brad said, for my Metallica army that I ran at Games Workshop Orlando. I had all the cards out because guess what? Admech is an extremely complex army and you're putting out, you know, like 15 plus buffs each turn on various units. Um, I need to know which units have which buffs so that I can use them effectively. And my opponent needs to know which units have buffs so I don't have to keep telling him it's here, 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 here. Um, I can, you, they can just look at the cards, done. So there's no debate about it whatsoever that things were declared in the command phase. Just make make everything automatic that it's super easy it's very clear and if the game is super clear on both sides you're having an amazing top table game so let's say that you're richard siegler you're in new orleans and you go and have a bottle of wine with your best friend blake and the next morning you wake up and your mind's completely wiped you don't remember anything your knowledge of the game is zero you're starting from nothing you walk up to the table and you see an army what are the general questions you are asking your opponent to kind of decipher what his army does and how you're going to make a plan versus it? So I know for an, I know for a fact I'd be in a dream because I don't drink wine. So Blake, <laughs> I got you there. It was, I was <laughs> say, I was like, it, did I just become seeing? Sorry, seeing. Brad wishes you could see me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I know this is this is falsehood, straight falsehood from Blake. But if I didn't have any knowledge of 40k, I was going up, showing up to this top table game. What are the questions I ask my opponent? Well, first of all, you need to see the list. Do not simply, you know, when people give you a rundown of their army, there are things that are missing. Not intentionally so. You know, there's just so many rules in 40K, so many combos. And they also assume, you know what I mean? Exactly. They'll assume some sort of knowledge on your base, uh, on your part. So you need to see the actual list itself. The devil is in the details in a lot of these top table lists. So, for instance, my Metallica list, what things have what warlord traits? What's the combos? Uh, what are the ranges on those particular traits? When are they given out, etc.? What are the main key buffs? Uh, and the, the main god, can you move redeployments, putting things in reserve? Can you pick a unit up and move it somewhere else? Those are so huge. And put it on your time. Like if you're using a chess clock, people are very, as a whole, very willing. If you sit down and I'm playing Seeks right now and I don't know how his army operates, it's it's way 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 more valuable for me to burn five minutes of my game time and just go k 
can you explain a little bit the combinations of your army, like you were saying? Put it on your time. People are very willing then. Yeah, threat ranges is a big thing. You need to know the range of their guns. What are the range of their potential? Do they have access to advance and charge? And what are their max threat ranges for potential charges that turn? So for a Metallicalist, there's so many different combos I could add. So Rustalkers, they move eight. Well, I'm going to give them plus three inch move because I have the Canic Thrall net. Now they're moving 11. I'm going to spend one CP potentially to make them fly to advance six. So now they're moving 17 and they're about to declare a charge with reroll charges on it uh, from Eyes of the Omnissiah. That combo, you might get pieces of that over the course of the game unless you know which questions to ask. Like, what is your max threat range? That is a really important question. Uh, So what's the max range if your unit moves its max distance? It's going to be able to move at this particular angle and see these units. So if I move my unit, you know, three inches this way behind the ruin, even if you move your max distance, you won't be able to see them. That's very much a top table conversation of what's happening in this particular, what you can and cannot do. Um, Things about asking about heroic interventions, fight first, fight last things. If you all of a sudden find out that they have a fight last ability and it's the start of you know, the fight phase and it's being declared, that's the wrong time to find out about that. You need to know and keep tabs on it throughout the game. Um, if they have things that can fall back and shoot or fall back and charge, you need to know what those are. Because if you go for a tagging play to try and shut down damage and they can just do one of those rules, wasted your entire turn trying to shut down something that's now going to do a lot of damage to you. And or they, they just got free attacks also, possibly. Yeah, probably free attacks as well. So you need to be constantly thinking about, um, you know, and this is why Brad mentioned pre-measuring, you need to be measuring almost all the different distances that could potentially threaten you each turn. My movement phase, uh, going into it, having watched my opponent's turn, what kind of damage they did, where they move their units, I know roughly where I'm going to move my units. I have a plan for that already. What I need to now decide is where are my units going to end the turn so that in my opponent's turn, I am going to limit his damage, whether whether I'm move blocking, whether I'm taking down primary points or banner points. What exactly am I doing in my turn that is also then going to limit the ability of my opponent to deal with me effectively? It's both things. So you are always looking ahead. You're looking at the present and the future in every single turn. So much, yes. And the thing is, is... Say out loud what you're doing. Uh, I just think that playing, saying what you're intending to do is such a big deal because, and that's why you see a lot of the very top tables having easier games. Because if I take my movement phase and I say, Hey, Richard, I want to not be seen by this unit and it moves to here, can I be here and not be seen? Just ask before you move anything, pre measure and then ask, Do we agree on this? Yes. Okay, cool. And move on with your life from there. And just tell your opponent what you know what you're intending to do. And if he doesn't think that they, you can do it, then you can discuss you know where well, where could I be kind of thing. And it's just so much easier than moving, not saying anything about it, assuming that you're not going to be able to be seen. And then all of a sudden he can move over, and he's like, well, I can clearly see you know part of this model. And all of a sudden you're not having a good game. You think you got taken advantage of when. All you had to do was literally ask the question. Yeah. In my opinion, the best way to play 40 competitive 40K is as a conversation, as a dialogue between two people. And if you watch any of the top table games or you watch any of our stream games, it's exactly that. Um, now we have that advantage of knowledge that we know our rules pretty, pretty much inside and out, um, especially for the factions that we play. So we don't have to ask as many questions as you normally do, but there's no harm in asking extra questions. It's perfectly fine, especially, and this is why I love using a chess clock. Like Brad said, you just tap it over to yourself, 
all right, I need to ask you a couple of questions about what you could potentially do here so I can make better decisions with, say, my command points for my stratagems. I need to be able to budget my command points properly so that I can effectively use my various defensive mechanics or a potential interrupt in an important fight phase. I need to know exactly what's going on. And there's a perfect opportunity with a chess clock to just say, hey, back to me, I need you to explain a couple of things to me. And that makes for an awesome game. But yes, it's a dialogue. It's a conversation with your opponent. I'm constantly asking if I was playing Brad questions about his army, about his threat ranges, about all the tricks and tools that he has. He's doing the same exact thing to me. To summarize, I think that Siegler had a dream where he knew everything that was, everything that is, and everything that is in the distant future. And that is how you win blindly walking up to a table. See, he's a Jedi? Yes. That is the summary. But one thing that we've talked about, and it's something that y'all mentioned pretty early on, is a lot of players, and especially new players, when they go to start a game, they lose the game in the deployment phase. They go in, they do a really bonkers deployment, and it just costs them the game versus someone who knows what they're doing. Tell us how to prevent that. Practice. I mean, just it, it literally... The thing is, is that you're... Not just another thing besides that deployment. Oh, you're not just trying to kill things. You're trying to score points. Scoring points wins the game. And the fact is, is that you have to deploy in such a way that you can make plays. You should have secondaries in your deployment should basically go synergistically with those things that you chose. So you're deploying in such a way that these people are doing rods i'm going to do engage here i'm going to take stranglehold here i'm going to do whatever and you have to do that and have a plan before you ever showed up like see says he just doesn't show up blind to places and the thing is is that no matter what you're playing against there's obviously things that change per army you're facing against but your general plan of scoring is not going to change and you should deploy accordingly with that and then you're going to deploy basically dependent on your opponent's threat range. It's just like Sealer was saying earlier. So there's a lot that goes into that. You're tying it all together, kind of what you talked about previously, just in the fact that when you go and deploy, it goes back to, I'm doing this ghost deployment in my house. I'm figuring out this unit's doing this on this mission. This unit's being, um, what's the term? It's being very, um, you know, Purposeful, very purposeful and where it's going to be. And it's there because it's going to be score me rods or it's there because it's going to score me engage. And you're not just deploying things to deploy things. Or maybe it's deploying because it's a screen for the right. unit you put back exactly. inside it. And that's the thing is, is like you people get into, I don't want to lose my models or I'm just being aggressive and killing models. Right now, there's a ton of games when you lose 90% of your army, but you're still going to win that game because I'm scoring. If I'm playing Seether right now, and I put myself in a giant ball playing against him, uh, it doesn't matter if I murder 90% of his army because if I spend my entire game trapped in my deployment zone, it doesn't matter what I kill. He's going to be winning by 50, 60 points at that point in time. How many times have you played a newer player at an event and they just wrecked your models, but you beat them by like 50 points? So much. I played Drakari a lot. So, yes. Yeah, yeah. Glass Cannon. I literally roll my army into people consistently uh, as long as it scores me points. And the thing is, is that you're not going to. I mean, 
it, there's a lot to be said about your deployment period, but also being, you don't want to be overly, I, I call it passive aggressive because you have to have aggression without just exposing yourself. But I just, you see there's army again that he brought. If he has 27 Raiders and you're like, well, I don't want to have his army kill anything of mine. Well, if he just puts 27 Raiders and just layers it up and you never leave, you, you have to do something different on that. So you have to practice that. How am I going to score my points? Not just how am I going to kill X amount of models or how am I going to have anything killed? So it's a, it's a risk reward uh, when you're interacting with models. Something that I feel like progressed me as a player from being just utterly horrible to being pretty mediocre is when I deployed, just knowing the terrain and what it did, you know, just if you don't know what the terrain does, you don't understand the benefit of moving from point A to point B, then it really hurts you. I mean, you're at a huge disadvantage in deployment, in the movement phase. I mean, knowing what terrain rules are and maybe having a cheat sheet somewhere is also something that I think every player should start with. Like at, at the very first, the very first time you put models down, having a sheet with all the terrain rules on it. Yeah, and, and the terrain, the thing is, is that most tournaments are going to have a terrain packet. Look at your player packet. Know exactly how your interactions work. Know when you're in terrain, when you're behind terrain. You know what I mean? When you can be seen, when you can't be seen, when you're getting a plus to your, your save. I mean, and the thing is, is that, for instance, uh, Seeks and I, we, we talked about your army that you brought interacts completely different depending on where you're playing at you know what type of terrain setup you're going to have and you learn so much from just reading the basic player packet of what what their layout's going to be and tell you the truth also what faq they're using you know what if they have any specific rulings for your army make sure you know them absolutely every pretty much right now almost every major format has its own faq for what are the big questions that games workshop has yet to answer in officially faq but it's still a gray area there's the wtc one frontline has their own for their different events uh, games workshop actually had their own above the faq so there are questions that you need to ask in game like sisters how does Arden Shroud work with disembarking from a rhino or how does can you fire two cherubs in a turn those questions have yet to be answered in, in a community FAQ. And so even at the Games Workshop Orlando uh, event, those questions had to be asked. Or I had asked about uh, Taraxi disembarking from the transport and using booster thrust. The judges there ended up ruling yes. It's not a binding ruling for all events or for the community as a whole. It was just for that specific event. But I needed to know that going in because it was part of my list design. So you need to ask these questions beforehand. So as soon as you're trying to nail down a faction and a list that you want to run, you should be messaging the TO if they don't have a you know a whole you know spreadsheet of the different questions like Frontline has. If they don't have that, go ahead and message, find out who the TO is. Message them. Ask them the various questions. I did this all the time with Tau in 8th edition before an event, deciding on how various interactions were going to work. Because Tau, for a long time, had a bunch of ways to get into combat without declaring charges. And Games Workshop, over the course of 8th edition, slowly restricted uh, those different ways. But I asked events whether they would allow it or not. Uh, to see how I could, you know, get around things like my opponent's Overwatch. So these are the questions you need to ask because it can be super relevant for the army that you're playing. Uh, Sisters is just a great example right now. And it can make your your the thing is is it can make your tournament experience so much worse. The thing is if you if you know the terrain, you know all the FAQ answers, you know the specific interaction uh, questions and the answers before you get there. Now. You, you don't have those come up in the middle. If, if Siegler waited till the actual tournament and didn't know anything about it, and then the middle of a game has to get into a big discussion about how this is going to be ruled, not only is he wasting his own clock, but now he might have played differently in the first place. So now it's a it does it's not a great feels good moment for him. 
you know? So just know all these things, do a little bit of your homework, and you're going to have a way better tournament all the time because your games are just going to be fun games that are based on, you know, lots of skills, some die rolls, hopefully. And instead of getting into feel bad moments or got things where you feel like somebody played a gotcha on you or you just didn't know like he was saying before you don't want to find out during the the fight phase that somebody's got to fight last or an interaction works a certain way yeah just to emphasize this point a little further in the couple hundred competitive 40k games that i played since eighth edition i have never called the judge over to my table during a tournament game never happened i have never asked to ask for a ruling and that happens because I ask beforehand what any of the gray areas are for both my army and my opponent's armies, or not specifically my opponent, but any of the potential meta armies I could be facing that have some sort of gray area. I just find out what the ruling is. And that way, you know, you can just say, Oop, here's the head judge who I messaged and there they said it. If you want to call them over, you're more than welcome to. We can get the ruling here as well. But usually that's enough. So... This, like if you have this knowledge before, it means yeah. you don't have to waste time calling yeah. judges over each table, waiting for them to come there. Because usually there's only a couple of hardworking judges at each event. And if this is a hundred plus person, you know, major, you might not get the judge for several minutes. And you exactly. have to go find don't, don't waste time. You don't want to lose games because of the fact that you weren't able to play the game. And the thing is, is that have the relevant, bring your book, have the FAQs with you, have small, like, besides it, basically any aids that you need, have your cards, have your FAQs, have your book, uh, bookmark it, have things ready, you know, things that are, uh, you might have gotten a rule, like have that ready so that you're not wasting any time. One thing I have to say is if you decide to call a judge over, make sure you're polite to your opponent and you're polite to the judge because nothing irks me more than seeing someone being rude to these people. So, just keep that in mind. It's not bad to call a judge over. I mean, especially if you're a new player, you're probably going to have to call one over at some point because there's no way you're able to absorb all the knowledge we're telling you in this episode and, and apply and, it to tournament. And a lot of times these guys are volunteers, man. They are volunteers almost always. Yeah. <laughs> and they're right. often top players. Like Games Workshop Orlando had like Justin Curtis as one of the, the head judges and Salty John. Those guys are amazing members of the community and really good players. And okay, they're taking the time out of their you know, tournament uh, schedule. They're not playing in the tournament. They're there to help everybody else and make them exactly. have a great and if, and Look up things before you call a judge. It's funny because in the WTC, you can actually get carded. If you don't look up the rule before you call a judge, you'll actually get carded. Can we take a moment to give a shout out to Justin Curtis, who piloted a fire raptor back in the remote uh, I, past? You know, and I, I brought him that was going to happen. That's why I brought him. No, Justin's yeah, a great player, but also fire raptor. Yeah, shout out to Justin. Justin's awesome. So not to not to bring us back to the subject in hand here, but I want to know what is the one mistake or two or three? I'll give you three for each of you that you see new players make when they're deploying, because I feel like that's an important thing. I feel like that's the thing to talk about if we're talking about anything today. So uh, I guess I'll start Uh, complete lack of planning. There is no plan so, on this deployment phase. There are so models much. just being there are models just being placed in a deployment zone. There's no rhyme or reason why certain ones are being placed first, why they're being placed in that particular area. Because as soon as you place the model, it needs to be doing several different things. Is it going to hold down the primary in your side of the board? Is it going to be used as a trading piece to either deny primary, get you secondary points? Is it going to be used to move block? Is it going to actually try and do damage? And thus it needs to be at a proper angle in order to get a firing angle down the, the table at an opponent's objective or where their units can potentially move. I so often see shooting units placed at angles where I can either move block them so they're not shooting the important stuff that I have, or 
they're at an angle already that, and I can just ignore them for a turn and put my firepower down a different angle um, and wait a turn and then probably do a move block on that. So I see this all the time with the Dreadnought Heavy Space Marine builds where they're in a brick and they happen to be at a spot where they're easily move blocked or they're only seeing one part of the table. Um, I saw this all the time playing, you know, Tau against, you know, 18 Smasher Guns where they happen to deploy the Smasher Guns all in area because they want a custom force field and awesome. I'm just going to play on the other side of the table and just send out cheap resources each turn. Um, so you can just easily outplay yeah. your opponent based on... If, if you consider like the deployment, and I, I like it a lot of times, I call it turn zero and turn one. It, it, people consistently deploy something and then they just move things in the open for and they get nothing from it. You should get something, be it move block, be it uh, you did damage, whatever, but people put resources all the time and they'll just be in the middle of the board and just get removed. Uh, if you're just sitting on an objective that you're not going to hold, don't be there, you know, wait, wait a turn, get, you know, move block, make it so that you're not going to get shot, uh, set up. You, you don't have to be super aggressive or super bad. You have, let's always call it passive aggressive because you have to set up for the, the future turns. And if you're not getting anything, if you're consistently losing pieces, with not taking any pieces in return or taking points in return uh, more optimally, you're you're going to have a tough game. I think that's a perfect segue into the next question was, what do you see people do after they deploy in the movement phase, which I'd argue is also one of the biggest things that new players struggle with. And you already mentioned one, which is just throwing resources away. But what are some other things you see people do who are newer to the game that cost them games in the movement phase? Uh, especially on the Dawn of Wars, which is the shortboard deployment, I see people's characters all over the place. So I've seen it all the time with Space Marine lists with the Rights of War character, who's granting obsec to core and characters nearby, happens to be on one flank completely, can never get back to the other flank, and I am going to go ahead and either ignore that side of the board, put a lot of pressure on the other one, or I'm going to trade, have my obsec mostly trade objectives over there, and then... Um, I don't need my OPSEC on the other side. So I very see it with character auras and command phase abilities, getting out of command phase abilities. You know, psychic phases can be all over the place because they're not in proper range to buff certain units. Um, you see it all the time. And all of that could be solved by simple pre-measuring, putting out a die. The character is likely to be in this particular spot, but I'll wait to move him until I put my units in particular positions. Now I know exactly where the character needs to go. So there's a lot of pre-measuring of just, here's where these units could go, here's where I want them to go. This is where the character would need to move in order to benefit auras on X, Y, and Z units. Um, so you need to have an actual plan. Stop. I see it so often. Movement phase starts, they start moving a unit. There is no plan. And then the plan starts to come together halfway through the movement phase. But hold on, there's been a bunch of mistakes and it kind of doesn't work already. So... Take pause yourself. What I like to do at the start of every movement phase is just take a couple minutes. Take a couple minutes. I already have my plan, what I want to do. Now I need to go ahead and pre-measure where those units need to go in order to effectively fulfill that plan. Because I don't want to do pre-measuring during my opponent's turn because it might give away what I'm thinking about and where I might be going. But at the start of my movement phase, I already have the plan intact. Now I need the precision of the plan. I need to be able to execute it properly. And that's where pre-measuring, putting out dice of where units need to go to achieve my goals. That's super important. I'm going to go simplistic. It's one of the, it's my person, it's my trigger point of finishing assaults, making and letting, letting people finish assaults. It's two part, letting people finishing, finish assaults on their side of walls. And you fin may always 
finishing assaults out in the open because you're always going to get killed afterwards. And then if you're letting people, if Siegler's army gets to keep charging me because I'm within one inches of a wall with his raiders and he gets to keep finishing movements where I can't shoot him back, that's going to be just terrible because I get terrible trades and I see it happen all the time. If you have a bunch of dreadnoughts coming at you, a bunch of vehicles, a bunch of monsters, don't be within one inch. Also, if you're playing things like Admech, Tricari, whatever, make sure they have to come to your side of the wall, which means you can leverage all of your resources on whatever came. You should punish whatever came to assault you by, by killing it off. If you're making it so they're constantly behind something, you're just going to always fall short on the trades. They're always going to be trading up. You're always going to be playing from behind uh, if you're not... Uh, Conversely, you that point one second, Blake. Um, you want to prevent those melee armies from getting easy charges into you and being able to fight behind walls. So now you can't really shoot them. The opposite is true for shooting armies because a lot of these ruins, obscuring ruins, have holes and doors and such. Um, and if your opponent wants to come up, you're hiding behind the ruin, so they can't actually, um, you know, shoot you. You're not standing in it. However, they might be able to come up and go ahead and tag that ruin and see you. This is where move blocking that position, actually being within an inch of the wall with a particular unit that you don't care about trading away in the movement. It's going to die, but it's going to prevent them from moving within an inch of that wall. That could be super helpful for preventing an entire phase of damage that you don't need to take. So great, great point on that. Both ways. And you have to have units that that's their job. Yep. Taking away objectives, move blocking. And that's that I, I actually think that that's one of the biggest things that you see as a difference between the bottom tables and the top tables. A lot of times you see people have a basic concept of the game, target priority, basic movements, but they're not doing things like that simple move right there. Oh, I just put some guys there that you can't see the rest of my army now through those windows. Um, I, I put another unit that just made it so, like Siegler had said earlier, I stopped your dreadnoughts. I stopped your vehicles from moving any farther so they can't get the angles on my objectives. So I'm going to get that 15 next turn. I'm scoring my objectives. That They're like very simple moves, but they make the difference in whether you're going to win that game or not. Because all of a sudden, if you're not stopping that, maybe you lost two objectives. You know, you, you got shot by all those things. Your opponent was able to come up and contest, uh, stop some of your movements. But over the course of the game, though, that's like five plus points a turn in secondaries and primaries that you could have taken yourself or prevented your opponent from with easy move blocks. And you see people not making them. And you're like, well, that's why instead of winning that game by five or 10 in a close game, you lost that game by 10 or 15. Could you just take a moment to explain the one inch of the wall rule? Because there might be some people out there who don't really understand that. Oh, it's, tough. it's tougher on that. It's just there's two different things that we're talking about on that. So if, actually, six, go ahead, because you can do do both of them if you want to. The, sure. the fact that you can touch windows and then just not getting assaulted. So in a lot of ruins, there are all sorts of doors and windows. And because of the obscuring role in ninth edition, you cannot see those through, through those doors and windows until enemy models are actually touching them physically. And you can draw a true line of sight to those enemy models. So if they're standing behind, say, in a ruin that has a base on it, and they're not touching any part of that ruin, you aren't going to be able to see them. However, as soon as your models come up, say two redemptive dreadnoughts for space marines, touch that ruin, they can now draw line of sight through it into those units that are trying to hide, and we're going to move out into the middle of the table the next turn. So that 
you could actually shut that down by being right up against that wall in the movement phase. So the, because the redemptors cannot move with it and their move in the movement phase within an inch of you, and thus they can't touch the ruin. They can't see what's behind it. The opposite is true for the charging. You want to be more than an inch away, especially for units that have larger base sizes, because you can potentially block it off such that they have to make a much longer charge all the way around the side of the terrain piece in order to get within an inch of your your models. So this is particularly effective against defending you know, assault terminators or blade guard so that they have to make a much longer charge than they originally wanted to because you're not within an inch of that wall and they can't fight you th- directly through it. So you, you want to make a space that's slightly smaller than the base that you don't want to go in without being an inch closer because they could swing and hit you through the wall if, if you're exactly. within an inch. Yep. So that's, that's something, that is something I see a lot of people not really understand. And, um, and also you want them to have to make that charge so that, again, you can use your resources against them. Because if you're within that inch and I'm playing my assault army, we, I, we did it, John and I did it, we were talking about Nola Enemy. Go watch it. Again, shameless promotion. When we did Drakari, and we were talking about the fact that there's a huge difference between 10 witches fighting from behind a wall and fighting on the other side of a wall. 10 witches get picked up by anything if they're on your side just standing there in the open. Toughness 3, 6 up save. However, if you can't shoot them, that's a threat that you're going to have to deal with in hand-to-hand where they have excellent weapons, they have a lot of attacks, and they have a 4-up invul when they get into there. So they're significantly harder to deal with when you get in there as opposed to just shooting them, which you could have easily done if you were making them fight from the other side of the wall. One thing I'd like you to explain also um, is the concept of using a screening unit because that's another thing I see new players struggle with is they look at, say, a Space Marine list. And they say, why is that Land Speeder Storm in there? Or why are this, you know, why is this like uh, Chaos Fiend in this list? You know, what, or Chaos Spawn, whatever they're called. Uh, what is the purpose of screens and why why would you use them in a list? Yeah, or Space Marine Servitors, um, you know, Admech can take Servitors. Any sort of cheap, cheap unit, cheap chaff unit, it's often called, that can perform the role of a, a tradable, disposable thing. Um, and doing so at such a low cost. So in the case of the servitors, they can be amazing at holding down your backfield. They can stand on objectives that are out of line of sight and do it for very cheaply. And at the same time, they can be preventing opponents' reserves or redeploy options from going into your backfield. You don't want a full expensive, say you're playing Grey Knights, you got all your interceptors and your Dread Knights, you don't want them sitting in the back of your deployment zone screening things out. Instead, you have servitors there to do that role. Now, uh, aggressively, you can screen. So things like land speeder storms, especially in white scars, are amazing for move advancing up the middle of the board. They can make a charge move, use their pylons and consolidates to push back enemy screening units. In addition, they can screen your own melee units. So this is something Jukari players can do very well with uh, reaver jet bikes. Send them up into the middle of the board, make a charge with them, and make a charge with some incubi or drazar, some characters. You want to keep drazar and the characters alive. They're going to murder whatever's in combat. There's no you know, you're not trying to wrap anything here, but you could potentially keep them, in, uh, you know, alive against another combat army because you have this durable reaver screen that's going to take a lot of damage, but still survive into the combat phase and make charges into Drazar and the Incubi a lot harder. So you can be thinking about screening in multiple different ways, screening enemy units, um, both from reserves and redeploys, but also in the charge phase. Uh, that's very important. In addition, there's move blocking, which is another type of screen. 
It's preventing units from moving into particular spaces, whether that's objectives, so Severus Raiders or airborne units like Remora drones and Tau or any flyers are really powerful move blockers because they can touch the very edge of an objective so enemy models can't move and advance onto it. And in the case of airborne, you can't charge them unless you have fly. Or in the case of Severus Raiders, they can use the 2CP tactical Blika strat to just fall back 12 inches away. Now you can't, you can redeclare charges, but you're, they're more, they just move 12 inches, so can't declare them. And you didn't get on the objective because now you can't charge anything. And the thing is, is a lot of times you're going to be setting up two different screens. Uh, you might be setting up a screen so they can't move and then another one so that even if they try to make a charge, they still can't get on the objective uh, and with their pilot moves afterwards. And one of the biggest things on that is, don't again, pre-measure, pre-measure, pre-measure. A lot of times you're setting up a screen, even against things that have the fly keyword, where you can the entire unit has to be able to make that that move. So if you've got a unit of Vanguard veterans or something, you can set it up where they can't all make it over you, uh, depending on how they're say. So you can do longer move blocks. Just don't be afraid to, again, just pre consistently pre-measure is going to make your game uh, so much better. Just knowledge and literally pre-measuring are two of the things that are just going to help you unbelievably. Your game will go up exponentially. Is there anything else y'all want to touch on in the movement phase? Because it's a big topic, and I think that uh, the Art of War YouTube videos are going to be super helpful in kind of breaking down a lot of these things in a lot more detail than we're talking about now. So it's, for those listening, we're doing an Art of War YouTube series, How to Play Competitive 40K. It's going to launch here shortly, so be on the lookout for that. But anything else y'all want to talk about for the movement phase? Patience. This is why I love using a chess cock, like I said. You go ahead and budget time at the beginning of every movement phase to make sure that you can effectively fulfill the plan that you thought of uh, in your opponent's turn. So it's perfectly okay to just sit there and think and pre-measure and go ahead and put down dice at the spots where you oh, need to move. Sorry, and have a real, real quick on that, Six. One of the keys that you just said there was during your opponent's turn, you were making your plan. You know, you should be thinking on that. That's, I just want to point that out when you're saying. Definitely. You need to be taking advantage of all the time in the game. Just because it's your opponent's turn doesn't mean you're simply blindly just listening to what they're doing and you know accepting. You're, just, you're not just rolling dice on your opponent's turn. You're actually calculating a very precise plan of what you need to accomplish based on your opponent's decisions. And when you go into your movement phase, you need the patience to decide, hey, this is the plan I thought up. Let's make sure it actually works. Because there have been times, and guess what? You can head over to the Art of War stream games. You can watch, click on one of Nick's games, and you'll come to a moment, inevitably, in one of those games where he says something like, this is just not going to work. And he's recognizing at that moment that his plan is not going to work, and he needs to come up with an alternative. And this can be done. You can come up with a plan A, plan B during your opponent's turn. But sometimes on the fly, you didn't think of this, or it just simply won't work because your opponent has you know, an advance ability on a shooting unit. It's just going to be able to get at the angle that it needs, uh, like the White Scars Grab Rhino. So what am I going to do to, to, you know, shut down that damage? This is where something like a move block could be very you know, powerful in shutting down that damage. So you might have to come up with an alternative on the fly, but that's where knowing what the tools are to help you in this particular moment are going to be super helpful. So fundamentals usually went out. Awesome. Yeah, jumping ahead just a little bit to the shooting phase, what is, I guess the big question here is, what is your target priority when you go in and how do you go about determining that? Obviously, we go back to knowledge because just knowing what's going to hurt you and what's going to take off, pick up your pieces is a big piece of that. 
But what are the, what else do you see people making mistakes on that? So I often design lists that don't care about a particular type of weapon. So for my Tau list that I played for a long time, it didn't really care about anti-tank weapons. You had enough drones to pass off and you could use your firepower to kill the anti-tank. And then late game, it didn't matter. Uh, all the all these small weapons can't kill riptides and they are not going to be able to attack the commanders behind who are doing all the damage. And the Metallica list that I play, I once again, don't care whatsoever about anti-tank weapons. So those elite AP4 weapons, doesn't matter. Most of the army has five up invulns or it's just relatively cheap models that I don't care if you're shooting anti-tank weapons at. So in that case, I typically prioritize killing my opponent's scary anti-infantry weapons so that in the late game, I pretty much get to do whatever I want and they are not going to effectively be able to take away resources. Um, so I like playing lists that win the resource trading war one way by taking away a particular type of my opponent's weapons. So if they invest 500 points in anti-tank, they're essentially playing the game 500 points down, or they're going to have to be really creative with those 500 points to get value out of it. Um, other ways are I like building lists that win in the movement phase, and movement is honestly king in ninth edition. If your army moves effectively, whether through advance and charge mechanics, double moves, whatever it is, if you're able to get across the board quicker than other armies, you have an inherent advantage. This is why armies like White Scars are so powerful, why the Skatari veteran cohort is doing so well. That ability to get across the board and project threat is enormous in 9th edition because of the smaller table size. So it completely changes the way in which your opponent has to play, because when you you know, go ahead and say, all right, these Severus Raiders, they can move 12 inches pregame. Then they can move 12 inches normally, or 15 if I want to add plus three. Then I could flat advance them six with the Metallica March to War strat. Then they can advance and charge because they're their veteran cohort and they use the stratagem. And they're re-rolling their charge roll. So they're basically at the edge of your deployment zone and ready to make a charge wherever they want. Are you able to deal with that? Oh, at the same time, they ignore the advance penalty for shooting and are going to try and snipe one of your characters. That's going to completely change how your opponent is going to deal with that problem. And they're probably going to deploy in an inefficient way, which gives you an inherent advantage. So you need, you know, just talking through the threat range of your stuff can often be a powerful deterrent to your opponent in putting their resources out there. Because they could lose they could lose a key character and that could completely change their game plan starting turn one. So they're going to play safe with them. Um, and if they don't, they could easily be punished and just swing the game in your favor immediately. And the threat is actually a lot of times more important than what actually they can, than yep. what they will do. Because as long as you have that projected threat, be it move, be it reserve, be it a weak <laughs> or something, it's such a big deal because your opponent always has to, to. They have to. That's one more question they consistently have to answer. And if the more questions you're giving to your opponent, the more chances they'll get that wrong. I think that this is about the end of the episode here. I think we do y'all have any further advice? Maybe listen for the YouTube series, you know, for the salt phase for everything moving forward. There's going to be a lot of detail going into those YouTube videos. So make sure to check those out. Do y'all have anything else you just want to add in general? Yeah. Find a local community or any community period that can help you improve your game. That's going to help you ask the tough questions. That's going to help you give you practice games where you can get reps in. That's going to help think about the other top meta armies. So that could be local gaming store, which has an awesome community, local club. Um, it could be um, an online community, like the Art of War, where we have an awesome uh, war room, which is just constant. It's international. There's people from all over the world who are constantly talking competitive 40k on our Discord. There's the TTS leagues, like I talked about, um, like the TTS Warhammer 40k Discord. 
Um, there's also s- tons of sub-faction ones. You can go on Facebook, on Reddit, etc. You can find all sorts of communities for everything. Very, very much, too. Yep. So seek these places out. Go ahead and find people who are like-minded, who are going to help you improve your game. Um, nobody gets bet, you know, amazing at 40K just by simply thinking about it. You actually have to do some practical work to that, and you need to test yourself. You need to challenge yourself. So I didn't get good because I just bought an army and decided that I was going to outplay people like this. I, like I said, John Lennon beat me down several times, and I learned real good uh, how to win in 8th edition, and I've carried on and continued taking those insights into ninth edition and continue to do well. So find a local community that helps make this game enjoyable and fun to play and who can challenge you to be a better player. 100%. Well said. Thanks for coming on, guys. It's it's been a great talk. You know, when when I wrote the intro for this podcast, I guess five months ago, which is crazy. I don't know if we really talked about that. We've been doing this for five months. It's wild. But the intro says, I think it starts like, what does it take to become a great 40K player? I mean, this is it, you know, this is this is where you start, you know, the fundamentals of the game. So 100%. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, guys. Um, make sure to check us out next week. We'll be going back to our normal format next week, which is a part one and part two. We'll be interviewing a guest about the game they lost, and we'll kind of break that game down, do a, for the third time, deep dive into the episode, drop it in the jar. Make sure to check out our other podcast. We have The Art of War Vanilla with Tim Lennon and John Penny. We have The Art of War Down Under with the late and great Adam Camilleri. We are, of course, The Art of War Unbroken or the Pistachio of the Art of War family. You didn't know you loved this till you tried us. Make sure to check out all of our other great things we have to offer at theartofwar40k.com. This is basically a coaching session. This is what, whenever you hire a coach, they will help you break down these things. They'll go into much more detail than this. They'll go, they'll be able to break down your faction, talk about lists. I mean, the sky's the limit, really. So make sure to check that out. You have Brad available for coaching. You have Nick. You have John Lennon. You have Mark Perry. You have all kinds of people available to hire to help you get better at the game also in addition to this so make sure to check it out make sure to listen to us next week and thanks for listening this week like what you just listened to check out art of war and the art of war down under podcast on the competitive 40k network the art of war 40k.com 